We are studying Jesus' final words to us from the cross. And we're here in the sixth word. We'll be here this week and next week. And so if you'll turn with me or read on the projected words, first from John chapter 19, beginning in verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. And then over in Romans chapter 8, Paul, who's had time to think about the implications of the cross, says in chapter 8, beginning in verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the One who died, who more than that was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger or sword, As it is written, for your sakes we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The man was born in Panama in 1951. He was the son of an American soldier and a Panamanian woman. And as soon as she gave birth to him, the father left and never saw him again. By his leaving, he left his wife and his son to abject poverty. They lived on the streets. They had nothing to eat. They ate uh, from people's uh, welfare or from the garbage. It was a tough life growing up. But when he got to the age where he could carry a bag, he went out on the streets and began to work. He began to shine shoes. And then he was able to deliver newspapers. And then he did something interesting as a little boy. He used to dance on the street and people would give him money for dancing. But when he was 12 years old, he gave up the streets for the gym. He became a prize fighter. He learned how to box. And at age 16, he turned professional. His boxing career spanned three decades. During that time, he won four world championships in four different weight classes. He earned many millions of dollars. He was inducted into the World Boxing Hall of Fame on his 52nd birthday. When he finished his boxing career, he had 103 wins, 16 losses, and 70 of his wins were by knockout. That's why he was called Hands of Stone. But when people think of him, they remember just one thing, most people. Even people that are very familiar with his, all of his wins, 
Just remember one thing that happened one night in New Orleans in the Superdome. The date was the 25th of November. The year was 1990. Sorry, 1980. And he was fighting an opponent he had beaten five months earlier in in Montreal. In that fight, his opponent decided to go toe-to-toe with him. And the reason was that this man continued to chide his opponent, saying if he stood still, he would get beaten. And so Sugar Ray Leonard in Montreal went toe-to-toe with Roberto Duran. It went 15 rounds, and Duran won on points. But this particular night, two days before Thanksgiving... In the eighth round of a 15-round fight, something remarkable happened. You may remember the fight. I noticed at a couple of services people were doing this because they remember what happened. In the eighth round, Sugar Ray Leonard was having his way in this fight. He was on his toes. He was dancing. He was throwing rights and lefts at will. And Duran was absorbing every blow. And then in the eighth round, with less than a minute to go, Sugar Ray took his right glove and began to do this as if he was going to deliver a roundhouse punch. And as soon as Duran's eyes were diverted, that's when Leonard hit him with a sharp jab, right or left jab, in his face. There's still photographs of that picture. Sweat's going everywhere. Duran's eyes are glazed. He begins to wobble. And then he does something fascinating. He turns away from Leonard puts his gloves in the air, says to the referee, no moss, which means no more. And the fight was over. Think of it. 30 years of boxing. 103 victories. And when most people think of Roberto Duran, they remember those minutes in the 8th round in the Superdome in New Orleans. In 1924, Calvin Coolidge was president. At this time, he had been president eight months. A newspaper executive invited him to come to his house for a major dinner. And so he went. Now, of all of our 44 presidents, Calvin Coolidge was the most laconic. You say, laconic? What's that mean? It means taciturn. You say, wait, 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 wait. It means he didn't talk much. And so a man, knowing this, across the table from the president says, Mr. President, I have a bet for $100. This is 1924. I made a bet with a man for $100 that you would be able to speak to me more than three words. Instantly, Coolidge looks him in the eye and says, You lose. You know, when you come to Matthew's Gospel, and you're all in it, I'm sure you're reading along, right? Yes, yes, yes. Reading Matthew's Gospel. When you come to the last part where Matthew talks about the crucifixion, you're tempted to think when you read that carefully that Jesus is a little bit like Calvin Coolidge, maybe even like Roberto Duran, because He doesn't say much. Matthew says, Jesus pronounces the fourth word, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? And then people hearing Him put a sponge in some sour wine, put it on a stick, and hold it to His mouth. That sour wine being seen as an instrument of deadening of pain. 
but he doesn't taste it. Instead, he turns his head away. Matthew says he cries in a loud voice, and he gives up his spirit. That's all Matthew tells us. And you think to yourself, what else did he cry? Matthew doesn't tell you. Then you turn to Mark, and he's no help. It's almost a verbatim. And then you turn to Luke, and he doesn't help either. He gives the seventh word we'll get to in two weeks. But Jesus says, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? He cries in a loud voice, and He dies. And it looks for all the world as if Jesus is a victim. Someone has said, if all we had was Matthew and Mark, you might think Jesus died as a victim. You might think He went from divine judgment to death. But thank God we don't have just three Gospels. We have a fourth. John tells us what he cried. You know, years ago, Henry Ironside of the Moody Church in Chicago was in Mississippi for a preaching series. He was at this church, large church, Sunday night, and they had during the service what's called a testimony service. And it was a time when people could stand up around the sanctuary and they could give testimony to what God had done. It needed to be brief, and generally it was. But at the end of this time, when Ironside was ready to go to the pulpit, a woman stands up in the back, very old, very stooped, tattered clothes, clutching a Bible, and she walks all the way down the long aisle and comes to the front of the church. And she says in her southern drawl, I just want to thank the good Lord. Thank Him for His Word. And it's power. Because when I'm low and trouble is all around me and my heart's a-hurting, I just have to open His Word and start reading and it's not long before I read the words that came to pass. And bless God, when I read those words, I always break out into praise and saying, it doesn't come to stay, it always comes to pass. Now that's exactly not what the Bible is saying when it says come to pass. It's talking about a period of time that has elapsed. And yet, you know something? When you look at the cross, the time has passed. In six hours, Jesus looks as though He's a victim. In the last three hours, He looks like He's been defeated. My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? I thirst. But then he cries out again with the sixth word that John gives us. And finally and suddenly you see Jesus isn't defeated. He's a victor. When he pronounces the sixth word, everything changes. Unlike Coolidge and Duran, when Jesus speaks, He doesn't utter two words. He utters one. The word is tetelestai. That's what Jesus says. Tetelestai. Someone has said it's the greatest word spoken by the greatest man at the greatest moment in human history. Someone has said the word tetelestai is the fulcrum on which all sound orthodox biblical faith is based. And John is the only one to tell us. It's translated, it is finished. And instantly you think to yourself, what's finished? Has the darkness abated? Yes. Is the judgment to come upon Jesus finished? Yes. 
Is hell that He's experienced the condemnation of His own Father for all of the sin that He carries finished? Yes. But it's so much more than that. And that's why over this week and next week, Henry and I are going to try to bring to light some of the significant meaning of this one word, tetelestai. I talked to a guy right after the last service who said, you know, this cross series made me really dig in. I was here 15 years ago when you preached it, but you're talking a lot of other things. And I've learned on my own there's things you didn't say 15 years ago, you're not saying now. What's up? And I said, you know, it's like an onion. The more you peel, the more you see. We could spend the next two years on this one word, tetelestai. And we'd never get down into the complete depths of it. So I'll start. Henry will correct. Let's dig in. First of all, notice when Jesus says it is finished, He means every prophecy ever uttered about the cross is fulfilled. Psalm 41, the psalmist says, He will be betrayed. And He is. In Psalm 31, the psalmist says his closest friends will forsake him, and they do. In Psalm 35, the psalmist says they'll lie about him, and they do. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah the prophet says he is innocent, and yet he makes no defense before the judges, and he doesn't. Isaiah says he'll be numbered among criminals, and he is. He's hanging between two of them. Isaiah said his garments will be divided, and they are. In Psalm 109, the psalmist says he'll be mocked, and he is. In Psalm 69, the psalmist says he'll be thirsty, and he is. By the time he gets to that sixth word, tetelestai, 13 out of 17 prophecies have been fulfilled, and within a matter of a couple of minutes, the other four will be fulfilled. When Jesus said it is finished, what He means is everything the Bible said about this experience has been completed. Second, not only is the prophecy complete, but so is the practice of obedience that God requires. Several years ago, uh, maybe six or eight, a woman by the name of Vivian came to the church with her husband Ken. And they always sit in the balcony at 9.15. Vivian taught second grade in Penn Hills for over 30 years, and my girls, both of them, went to that school and sat in her class in second grade. And you know what they say, those two girls? Even though they had a lot of other teachers, a lot of other institutions, they say Mrs. Chifa was their favorite teacher of all time. And the reason they say it is, they not only liked her, she taught them a lot, and they got into it. In fact, they brought home a lot of the lessons. And so through our daughters, I learned a lesson. And that's the difference between done and finished. A little kid would raise their hand and say, Mrs. Chifo, I'm done. She'd say, cakes are done. Students are finished. A kid would come in, I'm done with with nurse or with uh, uh, recess. That's what it is. I'm done with recess. She said, you're not done, you're finished. I mean, you think of a guy who's at the dinner table, he pushes himself back and said, I'm done with dinner. That's a lie. He's not done with dinner. He'll need again. He'll have more dinners. What he means is, I'm finished. 
I've completed this particular task. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't do what Duran did in that fight in New Orleans? He doesn't say, I'm done. He says, I'm finished. He doesn't quit. He wins. He declares that His work is complete. You know, for years, I used to wonder, why would Jesus have to live 33 years? I mean, why not just be born and die as a perfect sacrifice? Why all the temptation? Why all the deprivation? Why all the dust? Why all of the followers? Why all of the people that He loved taking misstep after misstep? Why all the insults? Why all the trek to the cross? Why? Why? And then you come to the sixth word. It is finished. In other words, everything the Lord has said, everything I've heard my Father say, I've delivered to you. Everything I've seen Him do, I've done. Every act of obedience He requires, I have completed. For it is finished. Third, the point of His life is finished. Paul tells us in Galatians 4, God sent His Son into the world to redeem those who are under the law. Now the word redemption comes from the business world. Mercantile exchange. It means to buy back. It means to satisfy a debt. And so you think to yourself, what's the debt? And the debt is every sin every violation, every offense that I've committed against a holy God. Every time I've done my own thing. Every time I've walked my own way. Every time I've said in my heart, I'm in charge. I'm violating the very One who gives me life. It's a debt we'll never pay. It's a monumental debt we can never pay. To whom is this debt owed? It's owed to the One who's created us. It's owed to the One who's redeemed us. It's owed to the One we've offended. And according to Jesus, and according to the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, and according to our own conscience, we know that this is a monumental debt and God who is holy demands a full payment. And what Jesus means when He says it is finished, is that it's been paid in full. Every debt, every buyback has been achieved. Tetelestai. It is finished. Then fourth, every penalty of the law is fulfilled and finished. You know, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Matthew records this. You've already read about it if you're up to date. You're in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins with the Beatitudes, but not long after that, He makes a statement that would have startled every Jewish hearer. You know what He says? I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In other words, every requirement, every obligation the law requires, I have come to fulfill that. The most minute detail. Years ago, a man came to an evangelist with a question, what must I do to be saved? It's exactly the same question that the rich young ruler asked Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? And the evangelist looked him in the eye and said, it's too late. He said, too late? 
It's too late. Are you saying it's too late for me to be saved? He said, I didn't say that. You said, what must I do to be saved? It's too late. It's already been done. All the work necessary for you to be saved has been completed by Jesus Christ and your job is to put your faith and trust in Him. Think of it. Every single infraction, every single penalty that the law demands for you to pay, Jesus has paid on your behalf. It is finished. And then fifth, Jesus is saying not only is every penalty paid, not only is every prophecy fulfilled, not only is the point of my life achieved, not only is every practice of obedience complete, but there's one more thing that I'll talk about. Jesus says that everything that Satan has, all of his power, all of his stature, all of his very presence in this world is doomed. It's defeated. He's destroyed. Listen to what Paul says again in Romans chapter 8. He uses a synonym for tetelestai. It's nikeo. It literally means to overcome or to conquer. So listen to what Paul says. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Do you hear what he's saying? What he's saying is, Jesus, when He cries in that sixth word, it is finished, means that every prophecy ever given about the cross is complete. Every practice of obedience that's necessary, He's fulfilled. The very point of His life is achieved. Every penalty of the law has been finished, completed, paid for. And not only that, Satan and all of his power is finished. You say, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. I have no trouble believing the first four. But Satan is defeated. His power is destroyed. You seriously expect me to believe that when he's kicking my butt? You know what James would say? Submit to God. Resist the devil. And he'll flee from you. Why? Because he knows the sixth word. It is finished. You know, to the human eye, it looks as if Jesus has been a defeated foe on the cross. It looks to the human eye like it's really uh, not Good Friday, but Bad Friday. But then, the sixth word changes it all. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Christ has shared our humanity so that by His death He might destroy Him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Do you see what he's saying? Christ became a man for one particular reason. To go to the cross to finish the work and the last piece of the finishing of that work was to defeat Satan. Luther said it best. One little word will fell him. Who's the him? Satan. What's the little word? Who's the little word? Jesus. How do we know that He's done it? It is finished. Now it's interesting to me to think about these six words. The first three have a particular audience, and that is the people around Jesus on the ground at the cross. 
Remember what He says in His first word, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then next He says to the thief, today you will be with Me in paradise. Then He says, mother, behold your son. John, behold your mother. Every one of those statements has a target audience and that, uh, that is the people, the men and women around Him at the cross. The next two are addressed to His Father. My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? I thirst. He's not addressing the people there. He's addressing His Father one-on-one. My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? I thirst. But when you come to the sixth word, He's got a completely different audience. It's not the people around Him at the cross, although they're hearing it. It's not His Father in heaven, though He's hearing it. His audience is all of the heavenly host, the angels, the principalities, Satan, demons, all of creation. When He says, It is finished. It's a cosmic declaration. I have completed the task. Everything's been done. That's why men and women over the ages have said, many of them in unison, this is the greatest word spoken by the greatest man at the greatest moment in human history. It is finished. Tetelestai. Charles Spurgeon knew all about it. And that's why in one of his great sermons preached 150 years ago in London on a Sunday morning at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, he said this. And by the way, what he's saying is a demand to his congregation. 5,000 strong. No microphones. He preached for an hour. No microphone. (laughs) He said, children of God, who by faith have received Christ as your all in all, tell it every day of your life. It is finished. Go to those who are torturing themselves, thinking that through obedience and sacrifice they might offer satisfaction to God. Tell them it is finished. Go to the one who's throwing himself on a bed of nails and say to him, Why would you bleed? It is finished. Go to the one who's torturing himself with fasting and self-denial, hoping, hoping to win the favor of God, and say to him, cease from all your pains. It is finished. In all parts of the earth, there are those who, by their own misery of body and soul, think that they can atone for their sin. Rush to them. Stave them in their madness and say to them, why are you doing this? It's finished. All of the pains God asks, Christ has suffered. All of the demands of the law, He has endured. And when you've done all of this, go to the priests of Rome who with their backs to the people offer every day a new sacrifice for the living and the dead. Cry to them and say, cease false priests. It is finished. For God neither asks nor accepts any other sacrifice than the one that Jesus Christ offered on the cross once and for all. It is finished. You see, Spurgeon gets it. He understands that the greatest word ever spoken 
in human history by the greatest one to ever speak is Tetelestai. It is finished. And Jesus means it. Everything His Father has ever demanded of you, Jesus has done. Everything the Father will ever accept from you has already been received for you by His own Son, Jesus Christ. It is finished. Aren't you glad that when Jesus hung on that cross at the end of the darkness, He didn't say, no moss. He didn't say, you lose. He didn't say, I'm done. He said, it is finished. And that means every single one of us in this room who puts even faltering trust in Jesus Christ, every one of us wins. You say, I never won the lottery. Too bad. You say, I always had this dream. It never came to be. I know what that's like. You say, I never felt much like a success in life. Yeah, I felt that way sometimes too. But you know what Jesus would say? Just remember my sixth word. And that's better than any lottery. It's better than any human dream achieved. It is finished. And that's why. God Almighty loves you so much. Think about that. In fact, I'd even picnic on that. Amen.